welcome back, everybody, to Educating for Eternity, where we talk about all things Christian education and the partnership between the home and the school. My name is Scott Luttrell, and I'm the principal of Christian Academy of Indiana. I am joined by three co-hosts today, and they will all introduce themselves now. Hi, everyone. I'm Kevin Wilson, Director of Counseling here at Christian Academy of Indiana. I'm Alicia Schaus, and I'm the Director of Bands here. I'm Jenny Davison, and I am the Middle School High School School Counselor. We are excited because we are five days away from Christmas break. And if you are in education or even just a parent, you know that these next five days are probably the worst five days to be in education because everybody is excited to be gone. So we're here in survival mode. Yeah, dumpster fires everywhere. Yeah, but we're going to be okay. Everyone's asking to watch Christmas movies and bring in cookies and trying to keep education rolling along. (laughs) Today, though, we're going to have a serious conversation, and the focus of today's conversation is going to be on anxiety and depression, so just kind of throwing that out there up front right now. I was pointed to an article in The Atlantic a couple of months ago, and it is titled, Why American Teens Are So Sad. We will link this article in the show notes. There's a couple of things that I want to stand out, that stand out to me that I wanted to point out to kind of lead our conversation in here. The first sentence in the article says, the United States is experiencing an extreme teenage mental health crisis. From 2009 to 2021, the share of American high school students who say they feel, quote, persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness rose from 26% to 44%, according to a new CDC study. So right there, it says that almost half of our students in 2021 and our children say that they're experiencing persistent feelings of sadness. Then it talks about a survey of 8,000 high school students and found that almost one in four girls reported they had seriously contemplated suicide at some point during the pandemic. And we'll kind of get back to this article on the whys in a little bit, but I don't think anybody is questioning the idea that all levels from elementary to middle school to high school, our students and children are experiencing a significant uptick in anxiety and depression. So the goal of our conversation today is to try to dive into the whys, try to dive into what we can do about it, and figure out what some next steps are. So I guess I will pose the first question here. You all that are in the classrooms, in counseling offices, are you seeing, or what kind of trends are you seeing when it comes to anxiety and how persistent it is at all levels here? I would say that's a big chunk of kids that I see in my office is anxiety and sadness. And Alicia and I have kind of worked together with a lot of students on those those exact issues. And I also want to go ahead and say that if you expanded your data pool, it's through every generation. Like we are in a mental health crisis in our school age children from kindergarten all the way to seniors, really. But seniors and beyond adulthood, if you were to expand the scope, it is a mental health crisis, period, in the United States, but also globally. There's a lot of contributing factors to that. Um, But with our students in particular, we're seeing, I I see a lot of cyclical thoughts, thoughts that are just intrusive that like rear their head again. Um, Suicidal ideation, for real, self-harm. And this is my 12th year. I know it's your 13th year, Scott, but it's my 12th year. And I think the writing was on the wall that the Lord was calling me to get some kind of toolkit alongside my music ed degree pretty early on in my career. And it's just been like um, a fire hydrant the last couple of years. 
there's reasons for that, and I know that we'll get to those reasons, but I just want to go ahead and say that we know that it's at the parent level too. It's at the teacher level. It's at, it's everywhere. Our society isn't doing a great job of making everybody be able to view the glass half full with the things that we're dealing with as a society and culture today, um, globally as well. So, But it is, it is at every age level. So if, I, if you look at the article, um, he talks about four forces that are propelling this increase. You know, it's really easy to dismiss things. It's real easy to blame the pandemic, which did have a significant impact on it. It's real easy to say, well, the kids are just a changing now. But there are so many things happening in society, like drunk driving is going down and other offenses that are normally related to teenage behavior that are going down. So when you think about the last 10 years, the biggest impact that he has said is the social media use in our teens. He talks about how in 2012, the, the number of Americans who owned a smartphone surpassed 50%. And I have been started education in 2010, have seen a dramatic change in our students from the first few years that I was a teacher and then to where I am now. So what do you all think? I, I would say that social media by far is one of the biggest uh, reasons this is growing. Do you all agree? Have any thoughts on that? I would agree for sure. And I think it can be easy to think social media is just like TikTok or Instagram, which it is. And that has a very big impact, but also being able to have what's going on in the world and um, just a lot of negative influences at your fingertips and being having access to that 24-7. I want to go ahead and say that there are creators of the social media apps that are saying that it is not advised for teenage and younger use. We see the impact it has on adults. Let's not. But this is a Christian education podcast, so I will not go down that rabbit trail. But more and more people that created these things are voicing up saying, hey, this is not good for kids. This is not good for kids. And why? It's the constant exposure, right? We weren't made as beings to know all the bad that is going on in the world. We know that we are living in a fallen world. We know that as believers. We know that it's not all rainbows and sunshine everywhere. We have hope in Christ, but in the time, in the now and not yet, there is a lot of bad. And we were not made to bear and know what is going on that is terrible instantaneously across the world. And our kids at these really really tough ages already as it is socially know when there's a bombing know when there's a pandemic know when there's a civil war happening know the rates of sex trafficking and all these other like big ticket things that are things to worry about and be sad about and they just see it on the daily as they scroll past someone's birthday I mean, that, when I was a kid, you know, you you would watch the the evening news at six o'clock in the evening, and that was it. The one time a day that you would get the news for thirty minutes. Today, like you said, it is twenty four seven, and let's be real. I mean, most of the news is bad, and so when you're getting a bad message, bad information all day long with the twenty four seven news feeds, that's going to cause a problem. Uh, with the social media, I think also when kids are constantly connected to social media, they're getting their their sense of identity, their sense of worth, their sense of value, their sense of approval from their peers, from other adolescents. Exactly. And I think the other thing, too, besides just our students who are so connected to social media, let's be honest, it's also us as parents or grandparents. We're so connected, and consequently, that creates a lot of disconnect in the home as far as just time to sit down and do life together, to sit down and talk, to sit down and interact. So often, everyone's on their devices, 
and that creates a separation. And so rather than uh, the child talking with the parent about problems and things that they're facing at school or emotions that they're experiencing or their anxiety or their concerns, they're just listening to the social media platform, to the, those who are on TikTok or those who they're, they're, connecting, with, those they're um, connecting with from their peer group. I think that's interesting because, you know, I think there's two different sides of social media. One, it's what you're getting, and two, it's what you're not getting, like you mentioned. So on the not getting, you know, you're losing those face-to-face conversations. How many times have I just sat there beside my wife on the couch and just scrolled endlessly? You know, that, that's, that's crazy that we all do that. Now, in this article, it talks about how they looked at 84,000 people of all ages, and they found that social media was the most impactful for females ages 11 to 13. You know, it's middle school girls. So middle school girls, when you give them social media, that they don't know how to deal with it because so much of it comes from what do your peers think about you. They are uniquely sensitive to the judgments of friends, teachers, digital crowds in general. And so all they want to do is be liked on social media. And that is a danger because they do not know how to interact with it. You know, it's almost like, it's not like, the article says it's not like rat poison, which will kill you instantly. It's almost like alcohol, that it's a slow, depressant, but it's an addictive thing where you just can't get away from it. Is it called Be Real, that one thing? Okay, I had a meltdown a few months ago in my office that was a teenage girl, okay, that literally the meltdown was because. Now, I couldn't dismiss it. We just talked about that on the last episode. I had to let them talk through their feelings, but it was insane. The meltdown was because someone, a boy, did not respond to their Be Real. An absolute meltdown bringing up cyclical thoughts of suicidal ideation it lets them go down these crazy rabbit trails and i can't use the word crazy that's not even fair but uh, like the neural pathways if we want to go ahead and talk about neurology here the neural pathways that get created from these negative thoughts once they've happened once they can quickly happen again so when a girl or a boy have had these really negative thoughts it's super easy for something to trigger that same thought pattern and here we go again with this really depressive really low emotion that gets triggered from it from the slightest things yeah and when they're just sitting there with their social media right there that spiraling thought is going to get worse and worse and they're not having that interaction with the parent they're not going to the parent to discuss that one negative thought it just it spirals down well when they're fixated on that so much it is their world it's it's what's real to them not what's tangible and it creates just so much anxiety because you are so worried about what other people are doing online, so worried about what other people are saying about you online. I mean, how often do I have to deal with um, uh, text conversations between chat groups and friend groups because they were just talking bad about somebody else? It just opens up so much fear about what is being said about me online, and that anxiety level just goes through the roof. Yeah, there's a lot of emotions that are involved there. Um, Anxiety, sadness that goes along with regret. I mean, what you post, it's there forever. Right, a student will take a screenshot of it and bring it into school. Um, you are way more likely to say something that online than you would ever say to somebody's face. Um, but you say it over the weekend, and then you come to school during the week, and that person that you said it to is face to face with you, right? So there's a lot of emotions that go into 
social media use. And the opportunities that are there for kids to make foolish decisions, you know, to make immature, Mm -hmm. foolish decisions that then have huge consequences emotionally and relationally. Uh, You know, a student takes a selfie, an inappropriate selfie, sends it out, and now... It's out there everywhere because whoever they sent it to, oh, absolutely, they would never have done that, but they did in this case. And now it's out there because someone else shared it. And now that's a really big deal. So how how does a 13-year-old girl or boy handle that kind of emotion? Obviously, it turns to anxiety and fear and et cetera. I think you also get that comparing mindset, which also fuels your anxiety. Because now I'm looking at somebody else's world, whether it's real or fake, whether it's somebody I know or don't know, and you just start thinking that I wish I could have that. And so, I mean, you could call it coveting, sure, but it's really just that I want that and I don't have it, so therefore I am not worthy or I am not worth anything. Well, the other things we've already kind of hit on it is that sociality is down. So if we are in our phones or if we are focusing on ourselves, we are not interacting with other people. And those interactions with other people on a daily basis play a huge role in our um, just our culture. So he talks about in today's world... Um, our students are more, excuse me, our students are less likely to get their driver's license than they were even 12 years ago. There are a lot of students here who, seniors, juniors, I mean, the day I got, I turned 16 or whatever it was in Indiana, the month after, I got, yeah, I was there. And my dad said, see you later. And he just left me there and he, he drove off. He also talks about uh, the share of high school students who got eight or more hours of sleep declined 30% in the last 15 years. They're not getting their sleep. They're playing on their devices. They're going through it. So what do you guys think about the lack of socialization that is happening, these face-to-face interactions, face-to-face conversations? I want to say that it's mirrored in adults, too. Um, We are much more comfortable just staying at home than going to social gatherings. Pandemic um, magnified that. I would say the trend was already in that direction. And then here we go. It's not safe to be around people. Right. So our little comfort zones became our homes. So now we're asking people to do the uncomfortable thing of be around people, have conversations with people. People are untrustworthy. Who knows what this person could be carrying? I can't get my child around this person. This big fear based thing. Um, We see it in the grocery stores. People not even making eye contact with people that they're next to. Um, I remember really in the height of it all. uh, Joel, my oldest, was really young, like two at the time maybe even one and a half, and he would say hi to everybody in the grocery. And I'm an extrovert, so I didn't mind it at all and loved it, but just watching how um, some people would respond, some people wouldn't, and he'd have to look at me and say, Mommy, they didn't say hi. You know, it's, but it, it, this, is, this is everywhere. It's not just in the teens, but they're, they would much rather just stay at home in their comfort zone than get out. Well, I mean, yeah, I think we can – um, talk about COVID-19 obviously putting us into a place where it was very normal for us to stay away from people, right? That was what the expectation was. And, you know, you do something for what, 30 days, it becomes a habit. Is that what they say? We did that for a long time, right? So it became a habit very more easily, I think, for kids as they were developing. But even for adults, I think we found some things were may have been easier because of that lifestyle, um, and it's really easy to just fall into that instead of doing the hard things and getting out of comfort zones. I think so much of the socialization that does occur today uh, is really a bit more on a negative and sarcastic tone. Uh, you look at what a lot of the kids are exposed to in relationships and, and sitcoms and so forth, and it's very sarcastic. And so they take that, okay, this is the way I need to interact with others. You're just on a constant joking, being silly, sarcastic, frivolous 
type uh, of level rather than a real relational kind of level of, hey, I care, let's talk, let's be friends. So much of it is based on that sarcasm and negativity. So if we look at the third thing now, he talks about, um, so we've already talked about the world is stressful and there's more news about the world's stressors. We've already kind of talked about that, so we'll fast forward to the fourth one. The fourth one, according to the article, is modern parenting strategies. And the article kind of lays out some good definitions and some good uh, explanations, but basically it, he says two things. Number one, children are growing up slower than they used to today, talking about less likely to drive, get a summer job, be asked to do chores. It's not that kids are ladies, lazy. It's that parents, though, don't put those uh, responsibilities on them. And number two is that parents have increased their accommodating uh, parenting style. So the example given is if a girl's afraid of dogs, one of the accommodations the parents do is completely remove all dogs from her life. You know, it seems like it comes from love, but in reality, it's not learning to navigate those different emotions. So, again, this is always a complicated thing because we are partners with our parents, but I would say that we have definitely definitely seen in society a complete change in how we are parenting our kids. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that us now, you know, us 35 and unders, we are in that digital age. We are also kind of digital natives where we understand how the world works. We are engrossed in our phones. We have a lot of the same um, cultural tendencies that our children have. And so therefore, we relate to them rather than realizing we are part of the problem. And we always try to do things that are best for our children, but a lot of times that is not the case. So what do you all think about the differences in parenting in the last uh, few years? I certainly think we see that accommodating parenting style um, where if a student is facing a social conflict, they're allowed to stay home so they don't have to deal with it. Or if they are facing anxiety over a certain situation, they don't have to come in. Um, and that makes it kind of makes our job a little difficult because, you know, they – the age-old saying of you can't run away from your problems. Um, you know, part of Christian educators, when, when kids come in and they are facing difficulties like that, I think our number one thing we try to do is help them to face it, right? Learn something either in that moment to get through it or learn something for the future to get through it when they um, are presented with that problem again. And so if they are being accommodated to never face what's giving them anxiety or to never face the conflict that's in front of them, I think that can be pretty detrimental to, you know, what they're, they're going to be successful at as they grow up. Yeah, but, you know, for, in parenting, it, it's harder to do that. You know, it's harder to work with a child through the emotion, through the problem, through the anxiety. It's a lot easier just to fix it. Let me just fix this for you. Let me just remove the problem. Uh, then I don't have to deal with it, so I'm not stressed over it. You're not stressed over it, and it's just done. But in the long run, that's not what's best for the child. Think about technology with these kids. I mean, I know in our home we do not have a lot of technology. And what I've seen, though, is it's very easy for me to say, I don't want to deal with this. Um, I'm just going to fix the problem right now of your behavior by giving you the phone, giving you the tablet, giving you the television remote at any level, and just letting them take care of themselves. I think a lot of the problems that we're seeing with parenting, myself included, is a laziness where it is so much easier to do anything other than confront the situation and put in the work that needs to happen. I think there's some more things there, too, along those lines, Scott, and we're busier our lives as adults are busier than ever, ever before. If you look at generations before us, the pace of life, seriously, pre-technology was slower. 
And so when we are at our wits end, sometimes that might be our best. You know, we're just trying to do our best by not ripping our kids head off. And that's okay to an extent, but how long can we continue as a society? We see the ramifications in our students. How long can we continue to take the easy way out? And technology is the easy way out, instant gratification, right? Like, I'm really stressed out. I'm going to disconnect from the scenario and scroll through social media. I'm really stressed out. All I want to do is lay here and play video games. I'm really stressed out. All I want to do is sit here and do this on my phone. It's a way to disconnect from all the stressors that we're experiencing ourselves. I also think it's important to note that every student is different. So, you know, while we have some accommodating parents who maybe that wasn't the right thing to do for your child in that situation, then we have some who are like, but I really don't know what to do. And you f- they feel like they're doing everything correctly. And that might be time for getting outside resource help for that student and what they're struggling with. And that's really hard if you have a kid screaming at you, but Joey has one, but so-and-so has one. And like dealing with even that comparison of feeling like they're left out of this world that's created that they're not a part of when you're even trying to go against the flow, right? And do it the quote-unquote right way. I also want to say that these negative emotions that stem from anxiety most of the time are future-based fears, right? They stem from these future-based fears and it's hard as a grown-up, we'll just say grown-up, to feel optimistic about preparing your kids for a future if you yourself don't have hope in the future, right? And so we as Christian educators and we as Christian parents have a degree of hope that we have to cling to and remind ourselves up, right? In Christ, this we can't be doom and gloom all the time. We can't. We can't be constantly groaning about who's in office and who the nominees are and what the current gas prices are, right? If we're constantly groaning about the state of our world and the state of our culture and what the future holds, how are our kids going to be able to navigate feeling excited about what's ahead, feeling excited about getting freedom to drive their flipping car, you know? What, what good is there to go do? You don't go do anything with people. You don't have hope. You're not enjoying life and thriving right now. So what do I have to look forward to? Once again, taught, not caught, right? If we're not seeing hope in our own lives for what's ahead and for what Christ is calling us to, how are our kids going to see that? I agree 100%. And that might not even be a conscious thing for the, the student. They don't, they're not thinking in their head, if you don't have hope, then what, why should I have hope? But they definitely see. Sure. Yeah. They mean, we look around, we see others, we compare ourselves, all these kinds of things. When I'm meeting with kids, I so often talk with them about, you know, where is your mindset? You know, because is our mindset on the things of the world or is our mindset on things above? So as Christians, we need to be spiritually focused. We need to be thinking about things of eternity and what really matters in the grand scheme of eternal things. And so I challenge kids, you know, set your mind on things above and not on the things of the earth. And we also have to talk about where, where, where are our hearts set? You know, is my heart just totally engulfed with the things of this world, or do I have a heart for the things of God? Am I leading my family uh, to have a heart for God and to seek His ways? I mean, I'll say everything you guys have already said. I'm amazed at how much I influence my children's personalities. The things that I say, the things that I do, just the culture that I build in my own home, what I do matters. So, you know, as we kind of wind this conversation down a little bit, I do want to talk at least about what's happening in the here and the now, and what we can do. So we've identified some of the things that are causing problems. That's good. That's a very important thing. But what do we need to do as educators, as parents, when our children are really engrossed and entrenched in their anxiety? 
What are some of the immediate first steps? How do you know when it's a problem? How do you know when you need outside help? So if we start talking from a so now what mentality, where do we go? Well, first I want to say um, what, how do you know if your child is even struggling with anxiety? And I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget. But um, Sissy Goff, she has a good um, definition of anxiety because um, she talks to a lot of girls about anxiety, young girls, and um, she says the overestimation of the problem and an underestimation of themselves. So as parents and as Christian educators, one of the biggest things we can do is just to speak truth into their life, right? Tell them, you are capable of this. Yes, this is a hard thing that's happening to you, um, but you are capable. And here are some resources that God has given us for, for you to overcome what you're struggling with. And I want to go ahead and say that I want to attach a lot of Sissy Goff resources in our show notes because she is an amazing um, Christian counselor in the Nashville area, and their office sees specifically children um, day in and day out. They And the problems that they discuss and see um, are just really eye-opening to me as somebody that does counseling, not in a counseling role, um, for sure. I think that knowing what Jenny offers here at school is a really great thing to know as a parent, knowing that we do offer, you know, Jenny's counseling services are not clinical, but they are very beneficial. And she can also offer things in a small group kind of setting. And I've seen that even as I was doing my practicum with her, I think things to look at when you realize, you know, this is a little out of our home. This is a little out of the scope of what Jenny can offer as our school counselor even. Um, we might need to partner up with an organization is when the student becomes a danger to themselves. When their thoughts get to a point that, you know, self-harm, suicidal ideation, when those things start to rear their head, um, there's a line that has kind of been crossed. And I don't say that to incite fear in parents. I say that to say they need help. They need some clinical help to help navigate the scenario. That's not ne to negate what the Lord can do in their life. That's just to say in the here and now, there is some safety issue um, at hand and partnering up with someone who is called by the Lord in that area and equipped in that area to help with some of this thought process. Yeah, and I would also encourage parents in if we ever hear any of those uh, red flags, any of those things where they they are saying things that could be harmful to themselves or in a negative thought pattern that we feel like could be heading that way, then we always want to collaborate with parents. And so we will have that discussion with parents and we will give resources. So if that's something that you need, we have the resources available to just get you to that next step. I know, Jenny, you mentioned, you know, telling your children that it's okay, you can do this. I think it's important to make sure you do that in the right way. So for me, I get frustrated when my children act helplessly. Okay, like even this morning, uh, my daughter was complaining that she couldn't buckle her seatbelt. You know, my initial reaction is, stop being helpless, let's go, figure it out. Okay, not helpful. Um, but I think there is that way to say, honey, you can do this. It's okay. Think through it. Don't give up. So that's one thing. All right, so Jenny said, hey, make sure you're encouraging your kid. What else can we do to help our students along with their anxiety? I think be intentional uh, to build that time to have those conversations to say, okay, let's not be on our devices right now. We're actually going to sit and talk to each other and look at each other. <laughs> and you know that that's a way to really figure out, okay, where is my child? To hear their heart, 
to figure out what's going on in their world, to understand them. So to be intentional, and that's hard because it takes time. It's a lot easier just to not talk and just to, like you said, sit and just scroll through our, our, our devices, but be intentional at that time. And then also, uh, as a parent, to make those tough decisions in love, uh, sometimes it means I have to say no to my child on whatever something may be. And that's okay to say no in love, to guide, to direct appropriately, uh, but to not be afraid to to really uh, make those tough parental calls. And I think it's important to remember that you are the parent. You know, you are the one that can say, no, you're going to put your phone down, you're going to come to dinner, we're going to have conversations. Now, you can't force that type of conversations in a relationship, but I think a lot of times parents today are too explaining with their children. Now, there is a time as they get older that you need to explain some of the whys behind it for the relationship's sake. But other times, I feel like we're afraid of our children. We're afraid that if I do this, maybe they won't love me. You know, the research shows that boundaries are healthy and important for our kids. So I think it's just so important that you make sure you realize you are in control and your kids aren't doing things without your permission one way or the other, whether that is you allowing it or you, you know, encouraging it, but you are responsible for your children. I agree. And I would also say show them. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I have I deal with anxiety on some level. I'm not like diagnosed with anxiety or anything, but I deal with it. And um, I think one of the biggest things I can do is tell my daughter, not in the moment, but later on, you know, like, oh, I did experience this emotion when this happened and this is what I did. And that's influential to her because she may not take that in the moment, but in the future she is going to remember, oh, this is normal. My mom went through this. This is what she did. This is what I can do. I also think just praying over your children. I've seen this and also in my six-year-old where if she's struggling through an emotion and we're not really sure what where to go next, to just pray over her and pray through, like, God help her to see the truth and, you know, just saying those things out loud. And a lot of times after that prayer is over, she's calm and she's, like, ready to move forward to the next thing. Before we end, I just want to also say, like I mentioned earlier, we are in a really a global health crisis, especially in our nation. And it's been a frustration of several parent friends of mine when they have been trying to get help for their kid that, you know, a lot of these counseling offices and things just have wait lists out the wazoo. And I just want to say, don't give up. Um, it just reinforces what I've been saying all along. This is a crisis. There is a online counseling service that isn't always my first like choice. It's called BetterHelp. Um, but if virtual help is the best help you can get at the time until you can get in person, it is an excellent option. Um, but don't give up trying to find and just keep praying for counselors to enter the field and for Christian-based counselors in our area to continue to pop up and for those resources to become available for our students. I think it's really important when you're talking about counseling too to make sure that as you seek out that counseling that you that that as you seek out that counseling that you don't uh, neglect the spiritual component. Yeah. There are a lot of secular counselors out there who can help you with mental health, but they will not deal with that true core spiritual element. And we are spiritual beings, and uh, as, as Christ bearers, we need to be. Uh, I think that's something with that's always interesting from a school perspective is because anxiety. I have phenomenal people that I work with here, people that love the Lord, but all of us have a line, and we have a limit to what we know from a counseling standpoint. I can sit there, and I can do the first steps, and I can be the triage in the moment, but when it comes to long-term effects or long-term effective counseling, I know my limitations. 
and I have great uh, trust in Jenny and Kevin that when I send them students, they will give them a phenomenal advice. But we all know that there's a limit, and so we would really encourage you to talk to your kids. Talk to us, uh, whatever school you're at. Talk to people that know your kids. If you're concerned about your children, talk to people. See what they recommend, because we get to see your kid on a normal day. We get to see when something is wrong and when something is different. We're often the first ones to notice that. We're here to partner. All Christian education is built on that partnership, and our job and our goal is to help you through that. We hope this conversation has been good. Again, we're going to link some of these articles and resources in our show notes. If you have any questions, feel free to click on those. Thank you again for listening.